Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. Robert Costa is the co-author of the hottest book in the country, Peril, which, of course, he co-wrote with Bob Woodward. Truth be told, when I found that I would be interviewing him on POTUS on September 29, I was bummed, and I said to TC, what are you talking about? He'll be on CNN previous, but to have him on POTUS on that date is too late. Because he will have been everywhere, and he has been, and there will be no meat left on the bone. And then came yesterday, and I found myself yesterday as I was doing the show from Los Angeles, juggling, listening to General Milley's testimony, and flipping through my pages of peril, all with an eye toward trying to determine, is Milley testifying in sync with that which was reported in peril. And rather than me trying to do a determination of that, who better to ask than Bob Costa? First of all, congratulations on all of your success. This book is doing tremendous and deservedly so. And I really do appreciate you coming here today. 
Michael, always a pleasure to be with you. Philadelphia's best. You're nice to say that. So, Millie yesterday, did what he said under oath line up? Did it jive with what's in the book? It fully jived, to use that term. It, it, it's in sync with our reporting. Uh, Chairman Millie was under oath, had to tell the truth. And what's important from the Millie testimony is that it was a reminder to me as a reporter that the context matters. And to understand what happened during this transition period, you really have to read the whole book, not just a headline about Chairman Milley and his conduct during the transition. For example, he talked about how on October 30th, 2020, the Chinese believed that the U.S. may have some kind of wag the dog attack. And he had a call with General Lee, the head of the People's Liberation Army, to wave them off that idea. And that call, he said, look, if there's ever going to be an escalation, you'll hear about it. You'll hear from me. There'll be communications. There'll be a buildup like there always has been in history. Milley was trying to calm down the Chinese based on our reporting. And that entire conversation is on pages 128 to 130 of the book. And if you read the whole conversation, the context is evident. He explained it. He said he believed President Trump did not war. We say that in the prologue of the book that Milley believed President Trump did not want war. What Milley was concerned about, and it came through in the testimony, it came through previously in our book, was that a hair-trigger environment and a president having an epic collapse could lead to some kind of unforeseen event that could lead to catastrophe. This one paragraph of your book, which, by the way, I, I happen to have notated and in front of me, and I recognize it's part of a larger conversation, um, chapter 26, which I read entirely on the air when I got my advanced copy because I wanted people to know the context. But this has been the subject of a lot of dialogue here, Bob. And what I promised my audience I would ask you is when he said, General Lee, you and I have known each other now for five years. If we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. It's not going to be a surprise. It's not going to be a bolt out of the blue. Was Millie BSing? In other words, is that the sort of conversation that individuals at that level have with one another, even if it's not true? It's a good question. He was not BSing based on our reporting throughout that circle in the sense that Millie and Lee had a five-year relationship of trust, military to military, leader to leader, behind the scenes on this back channel. So he was not speaking to someone he had no relationship with. It was a reassurance based on that kind of trust. He also, as he said in the next few paragraphs, signaled that there would always be an escalation, not some kind of random attack. What Milley was doing with that kind of comment was trying to get the Chinese away from this suggestion that President Trump would launch a wag the dog war. It is normal for military leaders to have what's called mill-to-mill -mill communication. They take place on what are top secret back channel lines. Now, when I say top secret, that means it's a classification of top secret, and it's on a back channel, but it does not mean it's a subversive act, some kind of secret act. That's really important context. Something can be top secret, but other people are read in, briefed, even participating in it. And what you see Millie doing in that scene is trying to say, leader to leader, let's calm down. But the moment was extraordinary. These calls can be routine, but the moment was anything but routine. He, saw, he was trying to prevent an adversary from believing there would be an attack, and then months later on January 8th, uh, trying to reassure the Chinese that American democracy was stable. Yesterday, in General Milley's testimony, 
he had a preliminary statement, and then at the end of it, he said, I'm paraphrasing, but but given the discussion in the media, and of course he was talking about you, you and Bob Woodward, I want to address something and then uh, said a few other things, including that he never believed that President Trump was intent on attacking the Chinese. I was reflecting on that section of the book for which you report there is a transcript when he was speaking to Nancy Pelosi, and she says Donald Trump is crazy. And he, at the conclusion, says, I agree with everything you've said. And I'm left wondering if that all squares. And in other words, does Millie think Trump is crazy? I guess that's the question. Our book shows that he believes President Trump at the time was in serious mental decline. But as he testified under oath yesterday, he's not a psychiatrist. He said something to the effect of, and this was not in his original remarks, he said, I'm not qualified to assess the mental health of a president. And that was an allusion to that conversation with Speaker Pelosi. And this was a very serious time. The Speaker of the House, second in line to the presidency, worried that the president, the commander in chief in charge of the nuclear arsenal, could go off the reservation and somehow do something uh, without any kind of discussion. And that's why Milley uh, tried to reassure her. But even after he reassured her, this scene is for history something that I'll always remember as a reporter. He calls in members of the NMCC, the National Military Command Center, and says, look, whatever happens in the coming days, I'm on the net. I'm part of these procedures. Remember, there's a discussion before the launch of a nuclear weapon or any strike. You got it? Yes, sir. You got it? Yes, sir. For all of General Milley's stated concern about Donald Trump, and and he comes off well, I think, as being a, a bulwark for the safety and security of democracy, not only in peril, but also in Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker's book. But for all of his stated concern about what was going on post-election and up until the time of the inauguration, why was he seemingly caught unaware on January 6th? Page 238, uh, you have him expecting a quote-unquote routine day on January 6th. Why weren't the lights all flickering for him before the 6th? It's a, a question that deserves even further probing. We, we, we dug into this in our reporting, and it is somewhat stunning uh, when you realize the lack of preparation, not only on Capitol Hill, which we've heard so much about in terms of the Capitol Police, but in the national security community about what could happen. And one of the unanswered questions of this period that we tried hard for the book, but it remains a target for reporters, is what happened between the rally at the White House, outside the White House, and the insurrection at the Capitol. Were right. there operational commanders, as they say? It, does it just happen? Maybe it's sporadic. Maybe it's not. These kind of things are questions that remain. Uh, and you could see the national security and military community of this country uh, taken off guard uh, about what was happening. And they didn't have National Guard ready. The police presence was minimal. Uh, there was not a preparation for some kind of uprising that could actually challenge the certification of the election. There was a preparation for protests. And what's interesting in the book, it, it comes through, I guess, in a quieter way, is how much June 1st influenced January 6th. There was a feeling that they didn't want to over uh, have too much police presence on January 6th, uh, lingering from what happened in the summer. And, and that seemed to influence uh, the response as well. Of course, due to what happened, it was clearly uh, not enough. Bob, I'm unclear as to whether on January 6th, Trump spoke with Pence. Did he call him? I, I, and may, I may have misread this, although I read it twice. On page 238, 
Trump called Pence at around 10 a.m., page 249, Trump never called Pence that day. Did I misread it or is that inconsistent? No, it's a fair it's a fair question and point. So we should have had a better phrasing in that Pence never called Trump never called Pence that day. He never called Pence once Pence went to the Capitol. So real quick, as as quickly as possible, January 5th, the confrontation in the Oval Office at night urges Pence to think about it. Uh, Then the morning of January 6th, Pence is at his residence, finishing up his letter that he's going to issue about his decision. Trump calls him again. Uh, it's one final phone call. A lot of people are watching Trump talk talk to Pence when he's on the phone in the Oval Office with Pence back at his residence. Uh, but the, the re- they did speak that morning. But what really stuck with so many people around Vice President Pence was that President Trump never called Pence once he's at the Capitol under siege. In jeopardy. Right. Uh, something that I've always wondered about that doesn't pass the Philly smell test, the timing of Bill Barr's departure, page 181, Barr wanted to leave on December 23rd to spend the Christmas holidays with his family. Really? He couldn't hold in for another month? Did he know it was all about to hit the fan and not want to be anywhere near it? Well, it's clear that he knew he couldn't break through with the president anymore. They had essentially stopped speaking. Our reporting shows that at one point, uh, President Trump calls up Barr and says something to the effect of, you know, you're not calling me at all anymore. I mean, the relationship between the president and the attorney general had all but severed by December. The president was pressuring Barr to do something more on the Durham investigation, to do more on investigating voter fraud. And they have a confrontation uh, weeks after the election where uh, Barr says there's nothing going on with these voting machines. U.S. attorneys haven't found any evidence. And Barr decides to get out. Uh, And Barr also is a political player. And that comes through not only in his April 2020 conversation with the president in the book, but you do see Barr realizing that President Trump's not only not listening to him, but the thing, this whole thing with Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell is something that he has no influence on, but he doesn't want to go to war with Trump. So using his political instincts, he works with Trump to write him a very sugary uh, note about his ach- achievements as president. So you see Barr not only leaving in December, but leaving without having any kind of public clash. He wanted to s- sort of slip out the door, our reporting shows. I think that people who've not yet read Peril, but have only read about Peril or seen some of the interviews, because so much of the focus is on the timetable of Election Day through January 6th and then on to January 20 might not appreciate that there's a lot of original reporting about the 2020 campaign in the book. I don't know that anyone previously definitively said Kamala Harris is the vice president today because that's who Joe Biden thinks Bo Biden would have wanted. But you report that. We do that. We do report that the memory of Bo Biden and Biden's thoughts about what Bo would want influences so much in his political life and his policies. When he was making the decision on Afghanistan, would I send Bo to this war? He was asking advisors and he would say saying things to the effect of, I wouldn't want to send Bo to keep that Ghani government in place if that's the whole mission. And when it comes to being the vice president, there was a a variety of factors. Our book shows uh, the power of Senator Harris at the time being a graduate of an HBCU, historically black college and university and Howard University. That really was a factor that Jim Clyburn pushed to then Vice President Biden. 
and also the relationship Bo had with Kamala Harris when she was attorney general of California. He was attorney general of Delaware, working together on different banking issues uh, that the personal matters to Biden. Biden's a deeply personal per- person who sees things through the prism of his family. You often when you talk to friends of Biden and his associates, they often talk about Biden using the phrase, that's what a Biden would do. And this is what Bo would want. And it, this is what it means to be a Biden. He really values what the family means in his own sense. I give you my in, word in as a view. Biden. Yeah, I give that's you right. my word as a Biden. You you don't have reporting on this. I was hoping that you'd go into it, but I want to ask nonetheless, did you ever see any evidence that Elizabeth Warren stayed in specifically to thwart Bernie? on the belief that Bernie couldn't possibly win and it needed to be Biden? Warren stayed in through, I believe, early April because she she just wanted to run the tape. Uh, If you talk to people close to her and sources, she wanted to see this through and she saw Bernie going and she didn't want to just bow out while Bernie was still in it. There was a lot of sensitivity in in the progressive side of the Democratic Party about who's really the standard bearer. And she has done a lot on her own to to really cement her own status in that wing of the Democratic Party and the party on whole. And so you didn't see her trying to jump out of the race anytime soon. And she had tensions with Bernie, as we all saw during the campaign. But what's so notable about the 2020 campaign that's kind of lost is in 2016, Bernie battles with Clinton, Bernie Sanders, all the way through the convention in Philly. This time around, Sanders gets out, has kind of a peace with Biden. Warren gets out, has this conversation in the book with Biden about her her deceased brother. So you see the progressives knowing Biden from his Senate days being far more interested in working with him than against him. I just always had this idea that the intelligentsia of the Democratic Party, including Barack Obama, saw Bernie as as about to capture the nomination in in a race that he couldn't win and therefore did some things behind the scenes. Final minute with Robert Costa. Here's what I want to ask. You've been everywhere, questioned by everyone. You know what has made the most news in the book. Is there something in the book that you and Woodward think you have that hasn't been noticed and hasn't received the level of attention that it should? I think the most important thing in the book that hasn't really been crystallized in the reporting about the book is that the story of the transition was a longer unraveling story. President Trump going off the normal channels on Afghanistan policy in November 2020. President Trump yelling at his generals and his top military leaders in the summer of 2020. Uh, the, The refusal to concede in November and December, Giuliani, Powell, that this was a slow moving train of uh, peril in the eyes of many around him that doesn't just happen on January 6th and that the story of January 6th is as much about that day as the previous days when John Eastman was writing a memo to Vice President Pence. The president was actively pressuring the vice president and others. This is a longer story, not just about an insurrection and a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the days after. Yeah. What was going on behind the scenes to, to give legitimacy to the type of violence that we saw on January 6th? I I, too, thought that was the, the takeaway. Hey, come home and I will take you to Four Seasons. Four Seasons Landscaping, OK? Four Seasons. I thought we were going to have a nice lunch in Philadelphia. Now we're going to the landscaping. Oh, man. Continued, Typical. Continued success. Great to see you. Thank you, Michael.
That's Robert Costa. The book is terrific. It is called Peril. You know that. Bob Woodward and he wrote it together, which is really good stuff. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? (laughs) Yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.